0: You're listening to the Comparative Media Studies Colloquium Podcast, a production of the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. Episodes are available on the iTunes Store, but we invite you to see us in person here in Cambridge. So get updates about upcoming events, each featuring top media speakers from MIT and around the globe, by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu.
1: for another two minutes because apparently we start this about ten minutes after. Uh, I just want to give a quick plug to an event that we're doing tomorrow at uh, four o'clock or uh, four-ish p.m. at the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab. That's uh, on the third floor above Legal Seafoods over in Kendall. And uh, every Friday these past couple of weeks we've been doing uh, video games and some controversial Topic and tracking his history of uh, of controversy. So we did sex and we did violence, and uh, this and this week is going to be politics. So uh, it's just fun. It's pretty informal. Just come by around um, after four and eat some cookies, and uh, and enjoy the the controversy. Thanks to Matt for pu- and Constantine for pulling that, here, whoever Constantine is. So I'm going to start with. Uh... Okay. All right. So uh, welcome to the CMS colloquium. This is actually. Awesome crowd. Uh, and uh, I like, uh, is my, I'm Philip Tan. I'm the executive director of the Singapore MIT Camp Game Lab. I am very, very glad to uh, introduce a good friend, uh, uh, Clara, who's been working with us in the lab and previously as a classmate um, in, in CMS. I was class of 03. She was class of uh, of 2004. Uh, so, you know, CMS alums are all around. Um, Right now, she's a postdoc at the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab, and she teaches courses on video game theory, on writing for for video games, and uh, she develops uh, games with teams of students, some of which, uh, actually one of which just won an award uh, this past month, a couple of uh, weeks ago, a game called Simon at the Indie Game Challenge in Las Vegas, uh, won the best downloadable game, uh, sorry, best browser game uh, uh, by Congregate, the online game portal. So, um, uh, she's a graduate from, um, from CMS, but uh, also uh, has a PhD from the, the uh, Digital Media Department from Georgia Institute of Technology. And her research concentrates on adventure games, game playing as a performance activity, and the integration of stories in simulated environments. So uh, check out her games on our website. And uh, Clara, take it away. Hi there.
2: Well, thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, it's kind of strange to be on the side of colloquium, having been a student and having been in this room to so many colloquium before. Uh, so the, the story that I'm going to tell today is a bit of uh, my, my academic history and how I've gone from, you know, Shakespeare to video games, and it all kind of makes sense. Uh, these are basically the institutions that I've gone through. You know, my undergrad was in literature, well, English studies more specifically, at the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid in Spain. Uh, then I got my master's at CMS, my PhD in Georgia Tech, as Philip was just saying. And uh, I've been working in the last almost, almost four years uh, in Gambit. Um, so uh, last year, I went to my alma mater, the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid, um, and I was visiting my teachers, my old professors, and I was trying to explain to to, to them what I do now. And and in explaining to them what I do now, I realized that my work has a coherent evolution and that I can still relate my current research to the work that I started back in Madrid. Uh, It dawned on me that my research asks very similar questions. Uh, What I'm doing now is applying them to different media. So, what I'm going to tell you today is a story of of my research, you know, how it all kind of makes sense. Um, During my undergrad and early grad school, uh, I started my PhD in Madrid, and then I came here for my masters, and then I did another PhD. Uh, When I was doing my undergrad, my focus was on Shakespeare on film, and now I'm a video game scholar. I teach and make video games as part of my research. Uh, This picture right here summarizes the last eight years of my career pretty well. On the one side, we have Hamlet and the ghost, and on the other, we have Guybrush Threepwood and the ghost pirate LeChuck. And believe me, it all makes sense. There is method to the madness, don't worry. Um, what, what I realized uh, was the key, and, and this is the running theme of this presentation, is that when I studied Shakespeare, I was always focusing on the text in performance. Uh, Even when I was doing close readings of the text, word by word, line by line, the key was always how the text would be delivered and also how it would be made sense of by the audience. When I was studying Shakespeare on film, I was exploring how the translation from theater to the moving image would transform the text by changing the locale of the performance and how the relationship with the audience would change, particularly, uh, uh, particularly when we were watching the film. Uh, <coughs> what I study now is how video games are also a performance activity. You know, we, ha- we have all these people here playing the Wii. They, you know, they're, they're performing in space. Uh, so what I'm interested in is how the game as a text creates an experience for the player and how the player makes sense of the game, particularly in the context of narrative games. I'm talking about different media, but I'm concerned uh, uh, with, with uh, similar questions and I'm using a comparative approach. Um, when I arrived to comparative media studies to start my masters, I brought my love for film and theater and came here with the goal of working with Pete Donaldson and Diana Henderson. I'm very happy they came here today uh, because they were two of the leading scholars in Shakespeare on film. Ah. So, But in my luggage, I also brought a laptop loaded with games, which I had already started to study back in in Spain. Um, CMS was the perfect place for me because I would have the chance to work on Shakespeare, theater, film, and video games. It was an ambitious plan, but it's not unlike most of the plans of of any uh, grad student in CMS. Every first year has grand plans when we come here. All right. My fascination with Shakespeare's work was how the same text would change meaning in performance and how it would change when adapted to film. That's what I was saying before. The aspects of adaptation I wanted to figure out were how theatre conventions, such as soliloquies, were translated into cinema. You know, it kind of, uh, it's, it's a convention to talk to the audience, uh, and, you know, express your thoughts to the audience, to be or not to be, or, or uh, um, Uh, you know, whatever uh, soliloquy you want to think of, but uh, it's kind of weird, you know, how does this translate into into film? You know, what is is happening? You know, is it the thoughts of somebody's head? Are they talking to somebody? Are they talking to themselves? That was the kind of question that I was uh, concerned with. What I was fascinated by was how film versions had helped me understand these plays better as an audience member. Even when they were written four years ago, not only in a uh, language that was different from my mother tongue, but also in an older register, film helped me understand these plays, which on f- print need footnotes you know in order to understand what the text sa- says, you have to go to the footnotes to understand fully what the text means so one of the questions I wanted to address was uh, when I was watching the St Crispin speech in Henry V and Kenneth Brannick 's version. I felt like I wanted to join the English troops too, even if it, it was a country that was at war when this play was written. You know, They were the enemy, and yet I wanted to join them. Uh, and you know, where, where did this come from? You know, how come that I understood the spirit? How come that I understood what was going on? The key was not the text alone, but how the text was delivered and staged and shot. It was the how. It was not only the words themselves. So, I wanted to explore the different levels of signification in the performance. Also, and very importantly, performance changes from medium to medium. Uh, acting for the theatre is different from acting to, to film. You know, uh, if you act theatrically on film, you know people will complain about it. This is a constant complaint about you know people like Olivia, Times, or Kenneth Branagh. You know, this kind of sweeping gestures. You know, look, don't look so well. Um, when, when shot on film, or, or, you know, they look very theatrical, they look kind of out of place. For some people, I like it, but whatever. Even though theater and film have overlapping signifying systems, visual and oral, they can also use different codes and conventions. My argument back then was that media had devices that were proper to them. So, for example, film has editing as, as a, the proper device, Uh, Well, theater has the the body of the actor and the voice of the actor as one of their proper devices, you know, the presence on stage. Um, So for my thesis, I took Orson Welles' versions of Shakespeare. Uh, Orson Welles not only did versions of Shakespeare on stage and uh, on film, but also did radio adaptations. He went through uh, different media. So it was a really fascinating case of, of applying, actually, comparative media. Uh, to it, and this is my old, this is my old diagram for my thesis. It's still there. Um, so what you see here is the backbone of my master's thesis. This idea that they were uh, devices that were proper to each medium. Um, so the argument of my thesis was that Wells borrowed devices that were proper of one medium and adapted to another, uh, and that was his way of experimenting. It was his way of innovating. That's why we remember Wells for. Uh, in hindsight, I have come to realize that it's not that they are proper devices, but conventions that well subverted by bringing on expressive devices and conventions from other media. So it was a kind of cross pollination between media. He uses, uh, for example, sound editing and recording techniques from Radiant Theatre. That was his Julie Caesar's production. Uh, he recorded sound effects and he wanted to have this soundtrack. To the whole play, and it was all edited in a radio studio. Um, For, um, excuse me, his film soundtracks can be listened on their own and construct a standalone story like a radio play. And you can do this with any Orson Welles movie. You can just listen to it and you know what is going on. Uh, In fact, for his film version of Macbeth, uh, down here, he recorded the whole soundtrack, he had the actors record the whole soundtrack, and then on the set, he had the actors lip-sync to their own uh, performance, which was kind of awkward, and you can see in the, in the movie that there's some sort of disconnect between the voice and the, and, the, uh, and the performance, and it's not because it's dubbed, it's because they're trying to lip-sync. Um, uh, again, he was kind of like bringing radio theater into film in a kind of strange way. Uh, for radio drama... And this is also very interesting. He was using film as a model. He had uh, short scenes and quick editing. He also had a somewhat uh, naturalistic way of acting in, in his actors. It was one of the trademarks of his, of his theater. Uh, whereas in radio drama of the time, the convention was imitating theater. It was having long scenes. It was, you know, uh, there was no cross-cutting, so to speak. But he brought editing, you know, quick scenes, cross-editing into radio. Um, All of these devices not only added layers of signification to the original text, but also defied the expectations of the time. This is why they were novel, this is why they were innovative. Um, So what I did in my thesis was using comparative media to help me understand text in one medium by comparing it with the expressive and formal devices of another. So that was basically my my thesis. Um, very quickly, uh, two of the other projects that I worked on when I was here at CMS, and this is kind of like a flashback. <laughs> um, I was uh, concerned with the production process, both as I was writing my thesis and trying to find uh, you know, Orson Welles's uh, notes in, the, in their productions and diaries and knowing more about how, how he shot, what his process was. Uh, but I was also interested in, in, in production in general. Um, When I was back in Spain, I was the art director of our English-speaking theater company in college. Uh, And when I came here, I had the chance to follow the preparation and rehearsals of one of the productions in the music and theater program. Uh, So the play was called Hamlets. It was a version of of the Shakespeare play and was directed by Professor Janet Sonnenberg. Um, The world of the play was the subjective world of Hamlet's head. We were in Hamlet's head. Uh, and the stage represented his mind populated by seven manifestations of the character. We had Hamlet the scholar, Hamlet the adolescent, the prince, the romantic, the madman, the man of action and the theater maker. And all, you know, each actor could also play other roles. So we had uh, an actor here who would play Polonius and Claudius and then in the next one he would be one of the versions of Hamlet. What I was trying to do was finding a way to document the process and how to tell the story of the production using digital media. And not only for gaining insight in the production itself, but also for recording it and for all the people to study that production. Uh, the result was a website with photos, videos, and note- notes, which is still online. I just found out that it was still online. I think it's an old version, but it's still there. Another you know, work that I did here, very briefly, but it was really great. Um, I had the wonderful chance to spend almost a month uh, diving into the archives of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust in in Stratford-Upon-Avon. So I I had the chance to browse the photo collections from some of the Royal Shakespeare Company productions over the years uh, from the late 30s until more recent shows. The idea was to uh, select a series of photos for the MetaMedia Archive uh, and build a collection which would be used in literature courses taught here at MIT. Part of my job in selecting these photos was identifying what part of the play the image belonged to. I was given just boxes of photos and I just had to figure out at times what play was, which was not difficult, but when in the play it was. Um, I have to say that that was my favorite part of the job because at times I could tell the exact line that they were delivering in the photo. Uh, And very often I got the chance to watch the same production on video and say like, ha, I was right. And I'll give you an example because I still remember. Oh, it's so dark. Oh, I'm sorry. So here, this is a Night's Dream, And um, you cannot really see, but this is Bottom, and he's got the, the ass ears. And uh, Titani is, like, grabbing him. So she is saying, out of this wood do not desire to go. Thou shalt remain here, whether thou wilt or not. You know, he wants to go, and she's really grabbing him. She doesn't want him to go. Now, the gestures are telling me what moment of the, what exact moment of the play is. I can read the gestures. I can read the stage. You know, I have all the information uh, to make sense of it. So this was my theater work. This was my my Shakespeare world, world CMS, and these were my methods. These were the kinds of things that I was interested in. Uh, well, I was here too. Um, my first paper in CMS was actually, was about adaptation, because that was the general theme that I was uh, interested in, but adaptation of a different kind, Uh, and it was on vampires and video games. And I've given talks about vampires and video games for the last seven years, because I love it too. Um, uh, my first paper was about, uh, vampires and video games, you know, from literature to film to video games. Um, you know. Video games were the other topic that I was interested in, and and eventually, they took over. You know, uh, my love for Shakespeare, my love for the Bard, still endures, but I was lured by the undiscovered country of video games. So, here I go. Uh, I spent the last semester of CMS writing my thesis on Orson Welles and Shakespeare, and reading up on game studies. Uh, Let me track back a bit and explain how or, or why I started studying video games. I am a philologist by training, and I know the philologist always sounds weird in English, uh, but that's where I am. I love knowledge, and I love knowledge that has to do with language. Um, And when I started studying and writing about video games, I was applying literary theory. There are many game scholars whose background uh, is literary. They have a literary background, as is in my case, but I don't hide it. I'm really proud of it. Uh, I like being coming from literature. Um, It's also true that the scholars that called attention to the problems of studying games as narrative uh, made me think about what are the things, what are the characteristics of games that make them different from other media. Uh, the, The whole ludology, narratology debate was very sobering and very productive, but that doesn't mean that I'm not interested still in narrative, you know, in, in exploring that issue, in exploring the, the, the clash uh, and, and the conflict between trying to play a game and tell a story or understand the, the, the experience of the story. Um, so so that, was, that was productive, but again, doesn't mean that I've abjured narrative at all. I'm still really interested in That's what uh, my work in, in uh, studying video games uh, has finally come to. Um, So when I went to, excuse me, uh, I never uh, lost interest in in the relationship between games and narrative. So when I graduated CMS, I went to Georgia Tech, uh, where some of the narratologists taught classes. Janet Murray was there, who ended up being my advisor, Uh, Michael Matias, who is now in uh, uh, Santa Cruz uh, teaching. Um, another person that I found really productive to work with was Jay Balter, who is also a philologist and a computer scientist, uh, and provided for me a, a model to how to transition from from the philology to to the study of digital media and new media. Um, one thing I wanted to point out is that many of the courses in Georgia Tech include a practical component. So while I was there, I improved my digital production skills and learn some basic programming. We do have a workshop component in the master's here, but it was th- the practical aspects uh, are even stronger in, in Georgia Tech, at least in the, pro- the way the program was when I was there. Uh, the goal of the digital media program is to produce scholars who are theorist practitioners, uh, which was a perfect segue to the applied humanities approach to CMS. So it was all kind of working out very well. Um, while I was there, I also discovered the wonders of interactive fiction and infocom games. And for me, this was a discovery not because I didn't know interactive fiction or, as I still call it, text adventures. When when I was little, there were text adventures in Spanish, but they were not really good. They were really difficult. And I had this frustration of finding something that I really wanted to play that I found fascinating and was totally broken. So while I was at Georgia Tech, I discovered... You know, things like Trinity or Deadline or Hitchhiker's, That Guide to the Galaxy, which had wonderful wor- worlds, you know, were wonderfully written, and they were not totally broken. Um, so, of, of course, the Infocom games were not translated into Spanish as far as I know. Nikki, they are. <laughs> you'd let me know, but I did not think so. Um, so for me, this was a discovery. Also, by uh, taking the courses there and having to play more games and, and recoup some of the old games I, I played, I basically rekindled my love for adventure games. And I will explain a bit more what this genre is later on, but this is the genre that I decided to, to focus on. One last thing that um, I learned in, in, in Georgia Tech was that you know, being able to understand game development and design from the standpoint of the game maker, uh, made me gain important insights in video games. And it's you know, similar to how being familiar with theater production helped me understand the text and performance. Um, it also helped me understand the, impo- the importance of playtesting. And I'll go on uh, about this a bit more later. Um, you know, I was focused on how players are essential to the pl- process, since without them, the game does not practically exist. I'll say this several times through the talk. This parallels how theater performance works. If if in a performance there is not an audience, it's a rehearsal. It's not a performance. There is not a show. Um, If the audience is not there to make sense of it, it's it's not a show. It's just rehearsal. Um. In the same way, in games, if there's not a player, the player does not take place. Uh, This was one of the foundational ideas for my dissertation, and again, I resorted to using comparative media to learn more about one medium in contrasting them with another. What follows is a, um, a part of where theater, uh, uh, performance activity, and games uh, come together. Uh, so this is more like the high theory, the, the, the stronger uh, theory uh, component of this presentation. So no, bear with me. I'll, I'll try to make it cool. Uh, so. The first step um, to build this bridge was understanding game playing as a performance activity. Uh, the anthropologist Roger Calloa in Man, Play, and Games discusses theater as a form of play in which the text becomes the rules. Uh, the text of the play is the rules of how you play, uh, you play the, the, the play. <laughs> Weird. Uh, Richard Chachner, who who's provided me with a lot of concepts that I've found really useful, um, made a short list of basic performance activities. And as you see here, we have rituals, theater, games, and sports. Um, these activities, just to make a short, you know, what is a performance activity, they are separate from everyday life. What happens in the ritual, what happens in theater, you know, is not real life. Uh, whatever you want to, if you want to call it the magic circle, you know that's fine. But it's this idea that they have the they it separate for uh, everyday life, and they have their own set of rules. Time passes differently. You know, there might be a time um, uh, there might be a time limit, for example, or they might regulate time uh, in periods, or, or they represent time differently. So, for example, in theater we might have a play where the action takes place over three days, but really uh, it only happens over two hours. I mean, that's the beginning of Henry V, if I remember correctly. You know. Um, so uh, the other uh, thing that characterizes performance activities is that the objects in them have a different value from everyday life. So again, examples for thi- from theater. A crown that an actor is wearing might be made of cardboard but is really precious in the play itself. You know, Macbeth wants the crown of the king. He wants to be king, and that crown is is very valuable, but it might be made of cardboard. You know, the exchange value is very low. Um, So with this list of performance activities, it's particularly handy first that games are already there, um, but also that theater is part of this list. Not only because I was familiar with theater, all my background, uh, but also because it's a performance activity that can be narrative. Uh, So where does the narrative come from in theater? You know, what does... does, uh, How does theater tell stories or stage stories? That was giving me a key to understand, you know, games, the relationship between games and theater and where the narrative can come from. Um, So I had a very, you know, this chart was already the first part of the uh, of the bridge, of trying to build the bridge between theater and video games. Um, For the... what I needed was a more systematic way of expressing the relationships and and expressing the parallels between games uh, and theater. So what I came up with was what I call a performance framework for video games. Um, The goal is not explaining video games as a new type of theater, but rather to create a vocabulary and a frame of reference that will allow us to understand video games as a performance activity. Um, And the the framework that follows is the core of my dissertation. So this framework uses theater as foundation, the main model is theater, and it has three layers. You know, the first one is theater, the second is digital media, and then games. Uh, I'll explain this in in more detail in a moment. So, excuse me. Um, The first model uh, is is using theater, and is a combination of the models proposed by Patrick Pavy and Richard Dechner, respectively. Uh, Pavy is a semiotician who is concerned with the mise-en-scene of written plays. Uh, The written text is the core of Western tradition. Um, from Shakespeare to Ibsen to Beckett. You know, we are very much attached to to the written text. On the other hand, Chechners' goal is to include all traditions of theater, uh, from dance and plays that might not be based on a written text. You know, think of the Commedia del Arte, for example. Uh, Based on Pavi's proposed terms, there are three basic components to this model. The dramatic text, the performance, and the mise-en-scene. So let's see um, each component one by one. The dramatic text is the script that is preset before the performance. In Western theater, this refers to the written text of the play, as I was saying. It also refers to the stage directions, it's not only the dialogue. Uh, so for example, A Midsummer Night's Dream is a dramatic text. So it's waiting for Godot, you know, the book. Think of the, of the book, the, the, uh, of the play. Churchner, um makes a distinction. He uses the term drama to refer to this written text. Uh, which can also be a score, a scenario, an instruction plan, or, or a map. Um, he st- makes this distinction, you know, from the written text to what he calls a script, which is the basic code of events, the steps that are followed in the performance. You know, for example, how participants should move in the dance. You know, like square dancing, for example. Um, with this distinction. Chechner is including traditional theater whose preset actions and text may be transmitted orally rather than in written form. So that is the dramatic text. From that we go to the performance. Uh, performance, this is the terms and the way that uh, the, these components are, are called. I'm just taking from Pavi's plas- classification. The terms are a bit confusing at times because Pavi and Checher call things differently, but the concepts are very similar. So performance, uh, here refers to the actors playing, you know, the lights and sound effects, what happens on the stage, what happens in the space of performance. Um, Chechner calls this uh, theater um, and he, th- to refer to what the performance actually do during production. Uh, a play may be written for the stage, but as I said before, it does not become a play until it's enacted, you know, it. It's a play on the text, but it's not a play until somebody's actually reading it aloud, moving, and and enacting it. A text can mean something completely different, uh, depending on the actor's delivery and movement, even if the words are exactly the same. So going back to Shakespeare, uh, the end of Taming of the Shrew. Um, We can have uh, Catherine's speech when she uh, basically admits the Authority of her husband, and and uh, and basically gives up her rebelliousness and says, "Well, no, he was right. I owe my life to him. I should tell. I should do what he tells me to do." And it can be delivered face value. It can be delivered as what the text supposedly says. I can also be delivered with a wink. It can also be delivered ironically. It can also. Uh, it can also be delivered so that it means the opposite or is undermining uh, that phase value, supposed phase value of the text. Um, so so we see how you know the same text can be delivered in different ways and, and mean practically op- opposite things. The last component of this model is the mise-en-scene, which is the confrontation of the dramatic text and its performance, you know, in front of the audience. This is the process by which the audience makes sense of the dramatic text and the actions of the stage. Uh, Schechner refers to this wider circle as the performance. You know, he's talking about, you know, this area is the constellation of events that take place in or among both performers and audience, from the p- time the first spectator enters the field of performance to the time the last spectator leaves. The audience is thus essential to theatrical performance since they complete the process of making meaning. Again, you know, we need the audience for the, for the show to actually happen. On a brief note, and this is just one, one thing I wanted to, to point out, um, modern Western tradition usually uh, establishes that performance is separate from the audience. Uh, although this separation, you know, the, so for, the so-called fourth wall, is often challenged and subverted. So, so here, supposedly here, is where the fourth wall would be, right? Uh, but there are types of theater, like puppet theater, for example, or Augusto Boas' uh, Theater of the Oppressed, which are in, enticing the audience to participate, to transform, to be part of it. Uh, uh, Brecht, you know, Brecht in theater is all about you know, challenging that fourth wall. Um This is important later on, uh, but I just wanted to point out that this you know the myth of the fourth wall and how important the fourth wall is is probably already in theater not as is not a law as some people think it is so that is the first line that is the first level of the performance framework um, so the second two levels of the framework are um basically parallel elements to the ones we find in the theatrical model. So, okay. The the second layer of the framework represents video games as digital media, as computer software. Uh, By applying the theatrical mode, the computer becomes the performer, whereas the interactor, the person that is using the program, completes the process of making meaning. The three components of computer software uh, as performance are the code, runtime, and interaction. And they are parallels to the components of the theatrical performance. So first of all, we have code. Uh, the code of the video game is parallel to the text of a play. It's, it's the software itself. Uh, is, the, is the data on a desk or on a hard drive. It's a set of instructions that the computer has to follow. If the code has errors, the program will either not work properly or not run at all. You know, the the, the, uh, uh, the computer cannot really fix it uh, because they are extremely logical. The second uh, component is runtime, uh, which refers to the computer exe- executing the code and the program working as it is expected to. Um, it is the process that takes place after the interaction starts. The program we you know click on the start button, we type a command that starts a program. You know we load a program in a browser. All those you know start the performance of the of the computer. Uh, unlike theatrical performance, where actors can ad lib or ignore stage directions, computers must follow the code and cannot alter it. We have there is not that negotiation that performers, for example, would have with their with their text. The last component of this layer is the interaction, uh, and it's parallel to the mise en scène of theater. The interactor closes the circle by interacting with the software. Again, in the same way that a theater performance does not happen without an audience, software may not run, but, uh, may run but is not functional until there is input from the interactor. Since someone has to complete the process of making meaning, uh, the difference with theater is that the interactor has an effect on runtime. The computer needs the input of the player to produce an output following a conversation model. You know, we do something, there's an output from the machine, and we react to it, and we go back and forth. The interactor is thus an active performer along with the computer. We have a co-performance here. Uh, If in theater the division between performance and miss and send is often challenged and broken through, in software, that trans- excuse me, transgression is obligatory for the performance to take place. There cannot be a fourth wall. Uh, it, would not, it would not really work. So that is the second layer. You know, we understand video games first as, as software. Um, third, we have uh, video games as games is the last layer of the performance framework. Excuse me. As I mentioned earlier, games are one of the basic activities that Chechener identified as performance. But he does not specify how the theatrical model that we have up there applies to games. He kind of mentions them offhand, but he doesn't really focus on games. So what I did was resorting to a pre-existing model called the MDA framework. Uh, it's described in the uh, paper that is uh, cited down there. Um, so this framework uh, accounts for all types of games digital and non-digital In, i already dealt with the digital part of games um, and i can it's easy to understand them as performance activities mda stands for um, uh, for the three components of the framework mechanics dynamics and aesthetics these three components are parallels to the ones previously established by theater and digital media, completing the structure of the performance framework for video games. So first of all, we have the mechanics. The mechanics are the design counterpart of the rules of the game, You know how to play the game. In video games, they become incarnated in the code, which is the system that enforces the rules. In commercial board games, there might be the instructions that are packaged in the box and that we read in order to learn how to play the game. Um, and also because I'm included in non-digital games, I have extended the concept of mechanics to all the formal aspects that are needed to play a game. You know, Not only the rules themselves, but also the objects, you know, the, the tokens that you might need. Um, chess, for example, we have uh, how each uh, piece has rules attached to it. So uh, the king moves in all directions, but only one square. The bishops move diagonally. And so, so it's not only the rules themselves, but also how those rules are attached to objects. Uh, and this will become important in, in, in a second. Um, game mechanics are here parallel to the computer code and to the dramatic text. They are the preset text that constitutes the foundation of the performance when we are performing, uh, when we are playing a game as a, uh, and it's a performance activity. The second component is the dynamics of the game. uh, And they are how the mechanics unfold, the events that take place when the game is being played. Uh, In the original definition of the term, uh, the authors of this paper refer to it as the runtime behavior, making the connection with runtime of software very clear. Uh, The dynamics of the game refer to how the rules are performed, how they play out. As was the case in theater, the rules are not being enacted or translated. This is an even clearer example of that. They are producing specific movements and behaviors with the objects of the game. As the player understands the dynamics, she comes up with different strategies. Um, and I'll give you an example that you would, probably most people in this room will be familiar with. So how do, do dynamics you know, generate from the rules? We all, we all know Tetris, right? When you're playing Tetris, there's always one point where you start leaving a column you know, just one square wide because you're, expecting, you're hoping for that long piece to come and you'll get rid of four lines at a time and you're, you keep waiting for it. But as you wait for it, because of the way that the, the, the rules of the game are being played out, the screen is filling out and you have less and less space to actually fill that stupid column. Uh, and at the end, when the, when the line comes, when the, when the long piece comes, you've either already blocked that empty column because you were running out of space or because you decided, okay, I, I'd rather uh, start uh, getting rid of, of these pieces because I cannot really play this game. And that's basically, you know, the rules of Tetris, you know, the, the code, uh, it basically is uh, the uh, pieces fall down, you have to... Uh, fit them so that you get rid uh, of them when you fill a whole row. But that is the dynamics, you know, all this strategy of, of leaving the column and waiting for the long piece, those are dynamics. Those come from the system of the game and also from the interaction of the player. Um, so that's, that's basically the dynamics, how the, the, the rules of the game play out and how the player is interacting with them. The last components of, of this layer and of the framework is the aesthetics, and this is a very ambiguous term, and, and, and it's an ambiguous term in the in the paper itself, where I got this from. It's presented; aesthetics are presented as the counterpart of fun, which is itself a very broad concept. What the hell is fun? You know, I study games, and still not clear. Uh, in the original paper, they define it as the desirable emotional responses evoked in the player when she interacts with the game system. Aesthetics refers to the experience of the player while playing the game, which is the result of the interactions of the player with the system. The implication here is that the experience of the player can be shaped by the game design as a result of the rules set in motion and understood by the player who interacts with the game. This is where sense-making takes place when we play a game, whether it's digital or not. So basically, it's like we have these rules, and they play out. And as we're interacting with these, with these rules, we create an experience. And the, the myth of this framework is that we can somehow predict what that experience might be, but not really quite. I mean, the MDA framework actually uh, presents another relevant parallel with theater. Um, the playwright, uh, in in a play in theater, the playwright may write the text, but eventually has little control over how the play is performed and how it's received. Um, Unless the playwright actually works with the actors while they prepare the play, and this was the case of Shakespeare, in in his time, he was a playwright, but he was also an actor, Or, or for example, Samuel Beckett, who was very controlling about how his plays would be staged, you know, these were kind of ex- exceptions, but really, theater companies appropriate the dramatic text and they cut it and extend it and transform it. The performers may ignore the stage directions as they come up with their own version, which will be eventually be interpreted by the audience. So, for example, uh, uh, a version of A Midsummer Night's Dream in contemporary English may do well with younger audiences because they can understand what's going on. They don't have to, to uh, fight... the the early modern English, Uh, but it might be considered outrageous by more conservative scholars, for example, because it's really losing the original text. In a similar way, and this is where the parallel comes, the game designer does not have direct control over the experience of the player. We design the game, it's out in the world. Uh, We don't know what the players are going to do with it. Um, And this is because the game needs the input of the player to become a performance the MDA framework gives an idea about how the designer can have an influence on players' experience, but in the end, the experience is always up to the player herself. So, that's um, what I wanted to say here is that this framework is actually very rich. There is a lot of implications that we can uh, glean with, uh, from it, uh, but today I'm just going to focus on the role of the player. Uh, and, and also the role of, of the audience in video games. So what you see here is that the player is here. You know, the player is on the side of the aesthetics. This is the the, the, the experience itself. But if you look at it, we are. Uh, it's also parallel to the mise en scène and the interactor here in the interaction. So that what this framework uh, first, uh, shows us is that the player is both a performer. Uh, you know a participant in the in the action, but it's also uh, Part of the audience and that is part of the negotiation in, in, in video games, you know, we are uh, spectators of our own actions as well as participants of the actions that are taking place in the game Excuse me um, As we Interact with the game, you know, we get feedback about what we're getting right or not. You know, we try, you know, we go around with a crowbar and we hit a, um, a crate, and if the crate is breakable, pa, you know, it breaks, and if not, we get a sound that's like, well, that was kind of stupid. Why did you try to break that? Uh, the the look and feel of the game are giving us information about what can be do, what, what can be done or cannot. You know, we are interacting, we're participating in the world, but we're also trying things and seeing what happens. We are getting feedback on whether our actions are uh, successful or not. So what I'm going to talk about um, as part of the implications on the framework is basically what what is the role of the player? What is the role of the player as a participant? You know, And what does this have to do with storytelling, which was what I um, introduced earlier on? So again, I'm going back to Richard Chechner because he provides me with another helpful concept. Uh, he calls uh, performance, he considers all performance restoration of behavior. The process of restoration of behavior helps us understand how the mechanics of the game shape the player's actions. So um, the quote over here, according to Chechner, some behaviors, organized sequences of events, scripted actions, known texts, scored movements, exist separate from the performance Who from the performers who do these behaviors. Because the behavior is separate from those who are behaving, the behavior can be stored, transmitted, manipulated, transformed. Um, Restoration of behavior is a concept that Chechner developed to explain performance activities such as historical reenactments, for example, or how uh, secret rituals are uh, performed for uh, tourists, you know, and how a specific ritual might change when you have the spectatorship of people who are not part of the community. Um, the concept of restoration of behavior can also be applied to uh, social performance. You know, like Irving Goffman, for example, if you're familiar with the presentation of self in everyday life. So that when we're performing, we are restoring a specific behavior. But where does this, you know, behavior comes from? Um, my argument is that the behaviors that we're restoring are part of the dramatic text. As Stetcher noted, they are scripts. You know, they might not be written, uh, but they are part of the dramatic text. The process of performance restores those behaviors. The scripts are in potentia, while they can be actualized in different ways. Uh, In terms of games, a very good example of, of this is house rules. You know, we can have uh, games like Old, May or Old Maid or Parcheesi or uh, Monopoly. We have Clue over there. I think it's Cranium. I don't remember what the other two are. Um, each time the game is played, the rules are concretized differently depending on the sociocultural setting. Uh, in non-digital games, players are the enforcers of the rules. You know, there is a social consensus that says we're going to play like this. When when parents play with their children, they might get a handicap or they might let their their kids win or they might make it easier so that the game is also fun for them. Um, Therefore, games can change from family to family, even within the same culture. It's the same game. It's recognizable as the same game because the scripts are common. And yet, every family plays it differently. And in Spain we say that, no, you know, your family, my family is the one that really gets it right. Um, everybody's family is the one that gets the game right. Um, so, so that the game is always recognizable. We know what game it might be, uh, but it's adapted to how a certain family or group of people might play it. So that is, you know, the, the restoration of behavior that we might have a game, but when it's, when it's restored by people, it might be transformed. You know, there's there's a script that is transformed as as it's being played. Thus, while the behaviors themselves are part of the mechanics, the process of restoration falls into the dynamics and aesthetics of the game. So, in relation to video games, it's a bit more complicated uh, since there's a range of strategies in which the behavior can be restored. As As I was saying before, the rules cannot really be negotiated. Since the computer as performer enforces them, you know we don't have that. I mean, there there are ways in which we can negotiate it, but but in theory, you know, in the higher level, the computer is enforcing the rules. On the other hand, players might have uh, might set their own goals in the game. So, for example, on the left we have uh, the first occurrence when I was looking for the prettiest house in The Sims. Uh, And that can be one goal. You know, you are in the Sims, and all you want to do is building really pretty houses. um, And that's all you want to do. Uh, On the right, I have a screenshot of Far Cry 2, which is famous for uh, an experiment where there was a player who decided to play uh, Far Cry. Did I say (coughs) Half-Life? Far Cry, Far Cry 2. Uh, He decided to play the, the game so that when he died, he would restart the game. He was just getting a chance. It was like real life, you know. I'm just trying to play this, and if I die, I'm done. Um, it's what we call permadeath, and they are playing. They are abiding by the rules of the computer, the the way the the computer is is uh, uh, enforcing the rules of the game, and yet they have room to to bring their own goals. So, so this uh, the idea of restoration of behavior. Um, uh, can be applied to a variety of games. Uh, and if I try to explain all games like that, I mean, I, th- I think that it's, expansible, it's expandable uh, and it's applicable. But as I said earlier, um, I decided to just focus on one genre, and that is uh, adventure games. Um, basically, uh, the comparative framework I just described has helped me explain how games can integrate stories and the role of the player in the narrative. Uh, in my dissertation, I focus on adventure games, and mo- uh, the primary reason is because these games right here are a story-driven genre uh, in which the gameplay is inextricable from story. They are, in fact, an extreme examples of how stories can dictate gameplay um, because the players have to perform specific actions in order to make progress in the game. Um, As I said earlier, I was also a long-time fan of games, and it also uh, helped that I actually knew how to implement and work in in this genre. So I do have a detailed definition of adventure games, but we've had enough definitions for the day, so I'm going to just give you the condensed version. Uh, Adventure games are story-driven. That is, the player's progress in the game makes the the events of the game unfold. The gameplay is based on puzzle-solving, Uh, where the puzzles are part of the environment. Players have to unlock doors, gather information from characters, fix machines, build contraptions, or figure out magic spells, Um, amongst a million things that you can do in them. In order to do that, players control a player character through which she can explore the world, Go around the space, experiment and manipulate the objects in order to solve the puzzles. You know, figure out how the world works. You know, you open every door, you try to pick up everything, you try to break up everything. You know, figure out you're kind of like a baby. You're like trying to examine the world, figure out how it works. Um, it might be easier to understand if I just give you, you know, some specific examples of what this genre is. So, adventure games get their name from the game adventure uh, from the mid seventies that uh, Bill Crowther and then Woods, oh, I'm forgetting the first name of Woods, and I know I'm, Downwards. thank you, Downwards. Woods. Don Woods expanded later on in the 70s. Uh, so it was the beginning of a whole genre, not only of, of text adventure games or interactive fiction, as we see here in the case of Zorg, or Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, also, we had graphical text adventures, which are very similar, but they have illustrations for certain uh, locations so that you know where you are. Uh, the Hobbit is one of the famous examples of that uh, graphic adventure games where you have the world and now you can click on the world uh, and you do have a menu uh, that tells you what the actions the possible actions are um, then we have point what i call point and click adventure games I make a slight distinction things like mist where you click and and you add, you interact with the with the uh, items in the world, but there 's no Verb list, you know, the 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 actions are there by default, and then you know more recently we have things like heavy rain where instead of having a verb list or instead of having you know to um, to hand down for a command, uh, you're you're giving the, uh, a list of possible actions that you perform with a, with a gesture, you know, moving the mouse a certain way or moving the the controller stick a certain way. So that's kind of like the short definition of adventure games. So in adventure games, going back to restoring behavior, so what does it mean to perform in adventure games? What is it to restore behavior in adventure games? So restoring behavior in adventure games corresponds to enacting certain specific actions by solving the puzzles. There is usually one way to solve the puzzle. There's only one solution. Um, uh, for example, in Monkey Island 2, which is the game that I have here, the only way to obtain money is getting job as a cook. Not robbing it. Not not robbing it. You're not. You're a pirate, but you cannot rob. You you cannot steal. That's weird. Uh, you cannot borrow. You're also in a. You probably don't want to borrow money in an island that is full of pirates. Um, since adventure games are story-driven, restoring behavior consists of restoring the events of the story. Uh, restoring the events of the story that have been preset. So in the game, you know it says. It kind of, uh, it doesn't say, but you have to uh, uh, get a job as a cook, and that is the, the kitchen where you should work. Uh, if we go back to the framework, if you think about the framework, these events are set by the equivalent of the dramatic text of the game, by the mechanics. So the puzzles are part of the mechanics, and they are the text in potentia. So solving them results in an event uh, of the story. Again, you know, here in Monkey Island too, you have to get the job as a cook. So um, there's already a cook, so you have to get him fired. How do you get him fired? You spoil the soup that he's working there. He's, he's peeling leeks. He's making a vishras. Um What do you do to spoil the soup? Well, you go and hunt a rat. Um, there, it makes sense in the world, really. You hunt a rat, you put it in the soup, and when the boss says that there's a rat swimming in the soup, fires the, the cook, and you get the job. And apart from that, you get uh, a week, weeks uh, pay in advance, so you get money from that. But again, this is all, this is how you have to do it. The game gives you cues. The game tells you how to do it. But, but there's no, there's no way to, to invent or or figure out a a new way to to get money or, or get that job. Presetting the story as part of the mechanics of the game. Is one possible way in which the story is integrated with gameplay. Uh, there can be other, you know, strategies. We there's the holy grail of emergent storytelling, whatever that is. You know, having the system uh, create the events of the story. I'm just focusing on this, uh, on, on having a story that you have to reenact, and a specific story that you have to reenact. The game is figuring out what happens in the story, and restoring behaviors is carrying out very specific actions. The pleasures of playing a game like this are similar to solving a riddle, as our own Nick Moffat has argued, as well as playing ring-around-rosies or participating or square dancing. You know, is synchronizing with something that pre-exists, it's being part of the consensus, you know, is finding out something that is already there. They are predetermined scripts which the player has to enact. The player, however, is not given the script but has to figure out what to do. Thus, in in adventure games, the player is like an actor without a script and must find her cues in the environment of the game. And that's what's fun. Thus, the game design has to help the player restore behavior, creating an environment that provides information and responds to the player's interaction. In order to solve the puzzles, the player has to be able to make sense of the world of the game. Similar to how in Shakespearean performance uh, gives cues to understand to what's being said, you know, the gestures tell you what, what's going on in the text, the game, as it's performed by the computer, has to provide ways for the player to understand what they have to do and how. So is the, you know, the co-performance you know, in, in the computer performing is helping the player restore behavior. For example, and this is Monkey Island 2 again, uh, throughout the game, it becomes clear that a lot of the challenges that the, the player needs to, to complete uh, need uh, makes the player cheat or do horrible things to people. You're a pirate. Uh, you're also kind of cowardly. You don't really fight, um, but you do really horrible thi- things and backstabbing. So yes, you get the cook fired and sabotage his soup. Um, there are several uh, contests that you, of course, cheat at. Um, you cheat at gambling as well. Uh, you get someone in jail because you plaster her face on a wanted sign. They want you, but you put her, head, her face over it and they capture her. Here, the, the horrible thing that you do is cutting off the peg leg of a sleeping pirate, and when he wakes up, he realizes he doesn't have a peg leg and he cannot walk, and what is he going to do? He pays you to get him to, to, um, to get him a new peg leg. And it's all about, you know, we have certain behaviors, you know, we are behaving like a cowardly, cheating pirate. And that's how we are performing in the game. This is how we are uh, performing the role of, of the pirate. Just to reiterate, I'm not saying that video games are a new type of theater, but that comparing games with theater has helped me understand better how video games are a new type of performance activity. And more importantly, it has helped me understand the double role of the player as both performer and audience. So that's, you know, the theory part. But of course, you know, I have a background as a CMS graduate. Uh, So, you know, this is about applied humanities in Georgia Tech. I was groomed to become a theorist practitioner. So, you know, in the same way that I had experience in theater production, I was interested in theater production, I had to put my theories on video games uh, to the test by applying them to development. So i make games too. Um, In this case, I've had the chance at the Singapore MIT Gambit Game Lab to work in games and, and test my theories and 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 you know see how how they actually play out. Uh, so during my stint uh, in in uh, Gambit, I've developed two games, and I'm going to do this very briefly because I'm running out of time. So how does how does my framework reflect on on the two games that I've been working on? Uh, the, the first game that I worked on in 2008, 2000, 2007, 2000, no, 2008, it was released in 2008, yes, um, was Rosemary. And the idea was um, the behavior that I was trying to recreate with this game was what it feels to remember things that you haven't thought of in a long time. Uh, It was based on an experience uh, of, when I went back to Spain, the experience of going back and meeting people that I hadn't taught taught to uh, for a long time and remembering who they were, who their families were, and that feeling of, like, this was all in my head, but I hadn't thought of it. And it kind of transformed how I was looking at my surroundings. They were all things that were coming back. So the idea was to make a game about that, and I worked with a team of students where... This was a game about memories, about comparing how you see uh, the the surroundings of this hum- hometown with how you remember them. Uh, your memories were represented by a photo album, uh, and remembering was comparing you know, two different versions of the same uh, of the same location. So, so I was trying to design a game that would that would help players restore that behavior and evoke that feeling of, of, you know, how memories transform, how we see our surroundings. So, for example, at a certain point of the game, uh, you remember how to get somewhere, and that makes a path appear. My, the team I was working with thought that that was kind of funny, but it was trying to to evoke that, that transformation. You know, we see now th- th- things differently. So... Rosemary was a first attempt. It was basically an attempt at finding a method of how to, uh, from the theories of restoring behavior, you know, this theories of design, how does it actually work? Of course, because in the framework, we also have the audience. You know, the audience is an essential part of the process. Uh, It was not enough to just develop the game. Uh, uh, During development, we were... uh, uh, testing this with people who didn't know anything about it. Ooh, I'm hitting my microphone. Uh, didn't know anything about it, and we saw how it played out, and we were trying to see if people were getting this idea of you know, the nostalgia you know, of going back to your hometown. What we discovered is that people really got the memory mechanics. You know, how the, they, they did uh, they, they pick up on how this model memory What They didn't pick up were the conventions that we were building this uh, game on. So we had this uh, menu where you click on, you know, talk and you try to talk to someone, Where you have to click and talk first and then the person you want to talk to. And people were very confused because they expected that if you click on talk, somebody would talk. Um, so, so that was, you know, in the first lesson is that in restoring behavior, there are cues that you give, but there are other cues that players will get from games they might already know. Um, so, so it's something that we have to fight as game designers. Uh, lastly, Simon. And this is the game that won the award last week. Um, the idea of Simon, the beginning was similar to, to Rosemary, that uh, I was trying to reproduce how dreams work. Uh, what it would be like to be in a world where the puzzles make sense but not quite. You know when you are asleep and you do things And while you're doing them, they kind of make sense. But when you wake up, you wonder what the hell that was. So I was kind of, I was really poking at my own theories, you know, of, of, you know, puzzles as making sense of the world. It's like, what kind of sense can we make of of a dream world? Uh, And from that, the question has been kind of drifting, because even though it's it's still focused on dream logic, uh, the the method, uh, the design approach that we took to, uh, try to produce a system that would produce that, that kind of feeling. Uh, was making puzzles that were generated randomly, generated procedurally. Um, we made a, a system that was basically the head of whose dreams we're in. Simon is a paralyzed patient, and he goes to sleep, and all his dreams are his hopes, his regrets. You know, all the objects that you find there, all the characters are represent. Uh, all the pain that he has inside, uh, but all the what this changes is making a game that whenever you start, because things are produced randomly, it can be replayed. Uh, this is new in adventure games because when you restore behavior in adventure games, once you know what that behavior is, you've done it once, and if you can do it again, it's like rereading a book. With this, you have a different game every time, you know. And again, one of the problems when we came to testing again. You know, putting this in front of people is important, uh, is that uh, uh, players would come here with the expectation that there was only one set of puzzles. and They not, did not realize that they could start over if they were stuck or they didn't like what they were seeing because they had those expectations. They didn't know that that's what they could do. Um, what what uh, both Rosemary and Simon had taught me is that I can make my experiment, I can uh, uh, apply my theories, but it's always important to make games that you can take out in the world, you know, and it's very, it's, it's satisfying to, to see that these games have made it into contests and, and people like them as standalone games, because that is eventually what you want. You, your games are not complete until there are players playing them, you know, there might be an experiment, but seeing that people like them, that people play them, or they might not like them, that's okay. They can interpret it whatever way they want, but that there is an audience for them, that for me is, is the most satisfying part of it. So this has been my story from Shakespeare to Monkey Island, and the journey continues, and I'm still using the comparative approach uh, to gain insight in new medium, uh, in new media, by means of another. Um, is not a matter of academic colonization. As we've seen, video games and theatre are different activities in spite of their points in common. Uh, What I'm trying to do, in a way, this might be a bit ambitious, but in the same way that Orson Welles experimented and tried to advance the medium by doing this cross pollination, by borrowing things from one medium to another, I humbly uh, want to know more, I want to advance the medium first by understanding it better, by developing these theories, but also by making games and putting them to the text to the test, excuse me. So, so that uh, experimentation is not only an, an advance for research, but it's also trying to make better, more interesting games, and gain more insight in video games. So that's my talk. Thank you. And my, and my email is still Hamlet backwards.
1: Um. So thank you very much, Clara. And uh, I'm gonna walk around with this mic. So, if anybody has any questions, just put your hand up. I'll walk over to with the mic down. so that uh, uh, so that the recording can uh, pick it up. Anyone like to give it a, a go?
3: Hi, Clara. I enjoyed Hi. your talk a lot. Uh, so, my my question is about the uh, <coughs> model that that. Uh, that you described from uh, uh, theater then you mentioned that that particular model didn't take into account the sort of uh, brechtian questioning of the, of the fourth wall that uh, Boal and others have have uh, have discussed
2: no the model does take it into account i mean it is is that like there's a division but it's not saying that the fourth wall is impermeable you know it, it uh, that's two things that both pavi and Chechner uh mentioned you know it's not impermeable and that's it's more the misunderstanding of traditional theater that is building that fourth wall. Uh, It's also a misunderstanding that the reason why I want to make that clear is because the fourth wall is an element that is constantly invoked in games. You know, like, how dare you uh, tell the player that they're playing a game? You're breaking immersion, uh, whatever that is. And, And that what I want to... To argue is that even in theater, where the term comes from, that fourth wall doesn't really exist.
3: <laughs> right, so, so uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And the, the reason I ask the question is just because you have that issue in, in mm-hmm. games where you constantly run up against the, the kind of constraints of the game, but the, those constraints also are a part and parcel of how the game I- expresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, why uh, uh, why don't you also highlight some of the kind of... the, the uh, theories from theater that might uh, also really highlight that that uh, audience-performer re- relationship, or or mm-hmm. or just would that be useful? Do you have ideas how so something like the Brechtian model you mentioned, I, and uh, for, for example, say in in theory of oral literature, th- yeah. there, there's a lot of parallel. Uh, with uh, what you discussed uh, with the model you showed there, but there's also account of the audience performer relationship as well as the architectural space, and that seems really close to what you're you're talking
2: yeah, about yes so so in my dissertation actually there's part of part of the discussion is is actually applying a bit of the Brechtian theories and how things that we do in games and particularly in adventure games kind of call attention to how we do something you know, things that we might do. Uh, without thinking such as using a microwave uh, can become a challenge uh, because you know suddenly you have to realize okay so we have a microwave, how does it work? Can I open it? Can I close it? Can I push the buttons? Oh I can you know, select the temperature? And it kind of highlights, the you know, part of, of Brecht, the, the theories of Brecht is calling attention to, to the actions that we do and at times the artificiality of them and and that's something that's a potential that games have. Like, okay, thinking about, uh, you know, how do I do things? How's things that, yeah, um, is true here. So, so this game trespasser, which we love to show in in in, um, in Gambit, you know, uh, you have your hand and you can control the rotation and how you pick things up. You know, and there is there is a level of detail that makes the actions really difficult, uh, and that is what. Changing that detail, like making it more evident that there is an effort there that I parallel, for example, with Brechtian Theater. But yeah, like the, the possibilities are, are there, you know, Boal, for example, right. yes.
3: I think so. that's a useful answer. Great,
2: right. thanks. Dan is raising a, an eyebrow.
4: I'm always raising an eyebrow. You know that. Um, Thank you, Clara. Um, um, I'm thinking about the Brechtian point, which is that, um, I mean, I feel there's a movement between a sort of descriptive aesthetics and a prescriptive, uh, or uh, slightly. Um, And if I'm thinking about the politics of Brecht, right, he, he certainly... His point of doing that is not simply a formal one. It Mm -hmm. is a political one to make you disrupt cause and effect, Mm -hmm. as, you know, Aristotelian cause and effect. It's to say you have multiple choices. Do not sit there and accept the given choice. Mm -hmm. So what I'm interested by, I mean, it sounds like what you're trying to do when I hear you not simply describing what is, but Mm -hmm. thinking about your most recent game, is to get some space in there, which is the only thing that sounded kind of Brechtian to me <laughs> is to have multiple possibilities. Because not only the use of the fourth wall, but the whole notion of a prescribed sequence that closes down alternative options seems incredibly 19th century in its yes. storytelling model. So I'm just interested in what you think is the p- potential there to disrupt that without it just becoming random possibilities. There is
2: indeed a potential for Brechtian games. Uh, you know, for call- and there are some games that have called attention to you know you being controlled, and it's become a bit of a of a comment. And I see Matt is raising his hand. I know uh, that there is a comment: "Are you are the player, and you are doing what we're telling you to do?" Ha ha! But there is not enough of it. Um, adventure games it's true that they are very prescribed. Uh, even when I'm in in Simon, where the events are generated randomly. There's still a system, and you still figure out the system. It's not about uh, adventure games are not about choice.
4: So um, could they be? I guess it was my question. Could you have something like a a game? I mean, because it's not it's a probably in really adventure
2: games enjoyed. as they are. You would have to change the genre. The conventions of the genre are very much about do these things here. Uh, but there are other genres, you know, more open worlds, and more sandbox. That yeah, there is that potential uh, right there. So yeah, no, I would find that really exciting. Yes. Matt
5: wants to say something. <laughs> oh, um, I, My view might be that all games are Brechtian and the good ones are the ones that know they are. Um, <laughs> but the, um, the other thing I was going to say is, is the, your comment about restoring behavior and the behavior restoring in adventure games is this linear behavior where you're basically, it's the pleasure of that there's this strict sequence and you're uh, kind of going through the motions and that that itself is pleasurable. It's interesting to me that adventure games get bashed for that, mm-hmm. but that is exactly, exactly what Rock Band is.
2: Yeah, yeah. no. That's the example that you Yeah,
5: exactly. So it's kind of like, you know, um, and it's interesting to kind of draw attention to that, that the underlying structure of that kind of pleasure, that kind of restoration of something that's very kind of static, um, you know, is valid in a sense. And it's just interesting to see it in the case of, uh, music games mm-hmm. uh, as being um, something everybody loves. Um, also, it occurred to me that this idea of an adventure games—you um, don't know what you're supposed to do—and uh, it's like an actor. I, I imagine those stories about Brando where he, like, you know, was didn't remember his lines and they were hidden around the set, which is kind of, <laughs> kind of, sort of like what playing an adventure game is like. It's like, oh, I got to find my next line. Oh, I did. You know, now I can go to the next part. Mm-hmm. And um, and it struck me that if you Take that uh, comparison further. Uh, is playing an adventure game? If you were going to play uh, Rock Band like an adventure game, would it be playing Rock Band without seeing the notes? And would and would playing um, an adventure game like Rock Band be an adventure game where you had all the solutions?
2: Yeah, you had the solutions. It's not as fun. yeah. So so I guess. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs>
5: I, 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 I guess what, is,
2: what is interesting here, we can draw a parallel, you know, from adventure games, you know, because you restore a specific behavior and you build a consensus. You know, you're kind of like building the consensus be- versus Brechtian theater, which is about defying convention, def- you know, calling attention to like, look, you are doing this. Is this what you want to do? Do you want a choice? Uh, I think that that's the the, the interesting contrast and one of the the potentials. As I said, you know, the, I think that the framework can be very rich, and there are all these questions that come up. You know, and What is restoring behavior and how can you defy that, that behavior that you have to restore?
0: Um, we started with uh, performance mm-hmm. as sort of the underlying mechanic. And the thing that I'm sort of interested in is um, I'm really not sure exactly what's meant when we talk about Brecht as performance theater any more than we really understand all of what Beckett meant when you talk about performance theater, because Gatto, for instance, is a very interesting performance, Mm -hmm. and the concept of fourth wall is basically obliterated during the performance, Mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons that that famous line that Vladimir says where he talks about Estragon throwing back the ball every once in a while. You know, when Nicholas Nickleby was uh, first put on Broadway, the concept of fourth wall was completely obliterated in terms of both the staging Mm -hmm. and in one very, very important scene. um, During the eating scene, the entire stage does not move, but all the actors move along with Mm -hmm. turning the window Mm -hmm. so that those who are outside are then inside and it forces the audience to experience both as audience Mm -hmm. and participant, right? The beauty of that mise-en-scene is that it has a dynamism which is very, very difficult to replicate Mm -hmm. in anything that has a procedurally, artificially intelligent Mm -hmm. executable, which of course is the difficulty that we always have in software. So, you know, when you talk about performance and, and video games, for instance, video games are sort of like herding cats. <laughs> the more you attempt to control your audience, mm-hmm. the less you're going to be able to control them. Mm-hmm. Because by definition, the audience doesn't have the same attention span at the same time and doesn't want to play your game according to your rules at any one time, which of course is interesting when you have a large audience. So so I guess my question goes to, I understand some of the theory, but I also have a pretty good practical sense of both of these genres. So... At the final analysis in terms of you making Simon and other kinds of practical empirical games, isn't Simon in a way your visual replication of what Joe Weisenbaum did? Isn't it giving you the perception of something that isn't in fact there and your opportunity to discover that for yourself in your own way and that is the performance that you're trying to enjoy? Yeah, I mean,
2: there's the history of... of of rosemary as well. So, what are the gaps that I'm leaving, you know, to the player? You know, what is, you know, I'm not feeding everything to the player. One thing that um, has happened with Simon is that um, uh, the the team that was working on it wanted to have a story. He, they were like, "What is the story of our game? How how do we structure it?" And I was, I told them, "Look, the story is part of our objects. Our objects, each one, have a story. They have." Uh, a set of rules attached to them. So we have uh, a carnivorous plant that represents the character's loathing of gardening. And all the things that you do to the plant are attacking it or doing something awful to it because you don't like plants. Um, And that's true of a lot of the objects. The story comes from... We tend to story-size everything. We don't need cutscenes. We don't need anything like that. We are letting the players realize that there is a story by putting these objects next to each other. I'm not sure if, if you know, we're doing like another Eliza where, where I'm kind of like the, the, uh, the computer is, is giving cues to the player and they're, they're performing on their own. I think that what I'm trying to do is a bit more responsive. I mean, again, I think about the co-performance. Um, and even though, yes, there are gaps for the player to fill, and that's where I'm finding it the more satisfying, you know, seeing the reactions of players, the most satisfying with seeing what they're actually bringing to the game, what they're bringing to their interpretation of the game, yes. Uh, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not as ambitious as, you know, calling Simon like the new Eliza.
0: Well, no, the reason, the reason <laughs> I'm saying it was um, you know, everybody that's talking about, for instance, uh, computers and video games and where they're going is talking about um sort of the equivalent of we're the Lumiere brothers and Mm -hmm. this is this new medium and we're trying to figure out ways Mm -hmm. to use it, okay? And just because we happen to sell things in boxes or distribute them electronically doesn't necessarily mean we all know what we're really talking about yet because we're sort of playing with a variety of things. The, The interesting thing that I was seeing in Simon was that like uh, uh, Joe Weizenbaum originally theorized. Well, actually, didn't originally theorize because he sort of was realizing things as he was going along. Was um, if you forget adventure games for a minute, because mm-hmm. to a certain extent, by genreifying adventure games, it seems to me you're self-limiting yourself. Talk about role-playing if you want to open it up a little bit. The interesting thing is, is that as computers get more powerful, and you're allowed to interact with virtually anything in the world, and it has its own unique physics. It has its own, own unique structure, its own unique information. See part of the limits, I've been building games since 1985. Mm-hmm. That's about 250 operating systems alone and undocumented system features all over the place and registers. Part of the problem is, is building the world. Yeah. You know, and so the real issue is, is how, how well can we build the world so that when you're interacting with it there's really something kind of cool happening which is something you never thought was going to happen before. And so that's really, I guess, why I was thinking that Simon could be cool in the sense of we've had hundreds of thousands of people write to us Mm -hmm. about things that we never put in our game. But it was designed to be heuristic. Mm -hmm. And so they found something that we had not tested so that they could come back and discover it for themselves and then inform us after the fact what it was Mm -hmm. to them. And what I would Put forth with things like Simon is that's a kind of cool way to start going where you allow them to build their own verbs and figure out you know yeah, that, your that's that's so.
2: like the next step when I finish with <laughs> the okay. procedural puzzle. Uh, but what you're mentioning is actually another paper and another presentation um, because yes, it's true that we want to build worlds that are very rich. Uh, but interactive fiction did this, you know, in the early '80s. We had really rich worlds in which you theoretically, it could do a lot of stuff. What happens is that it can also be very intimidating for certain players because it's like, I can do anything? And you realize that anything is not really anything. You know, like, so... Um,
0: Did you think in a understood? role-playing
2: game, for example, you can talk to certain people, but not everybody. Um, you can do transactions, you know, uh, but <coughs> <coughs> bargaining <coughs> might not be part of the system. You know, so, so there is a certain... Uh, what, what we call the level of abstraction of a world. You know, you have to choose how much of it is implemented. The more essential it is, the more reduced that um, that interaction is, the easier it is uh, to restore behavior, and some players like that. Other players, you know, like to experiment with worlds that are sandbox, and it's like, you are playing, you know, Grand Theft Auto, and it's like, well, I can just drive around, and I don't care about, you know, stealing or, or killing cops. I just want to drive my taxi around. That's what I like doing in, in, in Grand Theft Auto. And that's, and is the potential of sandbox, is the potential of, of these expanding worlds that is attractive in terms of storytelling. But it's always, I mean, I, I think that you, you hit the, what you're saying is that holy grail that I was referring to before, having worlds rich enough that they will allow behaviors and and things to happen that have nothing to do with what we had expected or what we had predicted, as as designers. And you know, with with Simon, there have been puzzles that we hadn't thought of, um, and and that's one of the hopes in the new systems that we're developing. That we're developing that there will be puzzles that come up of that system that we had not really anticipated, but that the system is creating them and their their logic and they, they are resolved. if that makes sense?
0: Well, I don't want to monopolize it anymore, but. Um, in terms of the first point that you made, in terms of you know getting the richness of the world, mm-hmm. uh, just to put it into cont- context, uh, Arena had seven hundred and fifty thousand characters. Mm-hmm. It was larger than Great Britain, and virtually everything had something related yeah. to it. So we're not that far, and we're getting better.
6: Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I totally followed what you were saying about wise but it's certainly a rich uh, place to go in relation to these issues. And um, I think in Eliza, what you have is that the creator, as you were mentioning, uh, was the one who was disturbed by the immersive power mm-hmm. of the game that he had uh, created. And, uh, and so, um, and that, he was the only, let's say, Uh, person who experienced it at first as a Brechtian work. In other words, it was disturbing because the perfection of the immersion uh, led to social and political questions about uh, control and and what it means to be immersed in a world and taken up in the world. And so it, it, it led me to think that maybe the equivalent of the fourth wall is not the different stuff that I can do in a game but the possibility that the player might become aware of who the player is in this in that world mm-hmm. and that that might be the fourth wall frontier in other words where where a game is not only successful in drawing you in but also has the effect of, of, of making you wonder doubt question and reflect mm-hmm. on who you are as you play the game
2: yeah i mean part of my Janet murray is my advisor um but i'm a big I'm very skeptical about the whole immersion thing. You know, it's like, yeah. why, why should games be immersive? Why not making games about being aware that there is something, you know, that, that I'm not being able to choose all the things I want to choose, that I cannot really do all the things that I want to do because there's been a design that is constraining, you right. know, what I do and where does that constraint come from? Um, you know, I don't think that, that players are traumatized if someone tells them that, oh, you're really in a game. Hi. Um, I find that more interesting.
0: Um.
7: There's been some discussion of building a world mm-hmm. within a game, but there's this world mm-hmm. and gaming this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the last couple of months, uh, I've been talking with some people uh, an online global community looking at climate change, mm-hmm. and they are talking about how do we how do we build a game that allows us to deal with this real world issue? Um, Jay McGonigal mm-hmm. talks about the same thing and has built at least three games that I know of that deal with various aspects of that. Um, A few months ago was the 50th anniversary of Buckminster Fuller's concept of the world game. And as far as I know, there's still no online version of the world game or even a dashboard for Spaceship Earth so that people can actually look at the reality of the world in which we are living in and perhaps modify their behavior to make that world uh, a better quote-unquote place. I'm wondering about those kinds of games, not necessarily games with social purpose, but games that actually mirror the real world so that people become more skillful. Um, primarily for that, the, you know, that's the object. I know that, that games do that tangentially, but objectively doing that to to deal with some issues that we have to confront, so that we can understand them better than we can now without some kind of play, some kind of game.
2: I mean, there's there's two things on, on what you're referring to. There's the whole gamification debate, which I can already advance. I'm not a big fan of the whole gamification. I think that that there is a relationship between games and the real world, but I think that what you can learn from games, you can apply to the real world, but kind of overlapping them might be confusing the, the power of what we call the magic circle of, you know, games and theater, they're, they're separate from the real world, you know, even if we trans, uh, transgress, you know, the boundaries they're separate and there is this, uh, there's a safety in the performance where we can experiment where we can try things uh, that if we transform that into the real world it's kind of like well anything goes now and we are talking about serious issues we're talking about climate change and it's like well if this is a game we can just experiment so what happens if I just drive everywhere that could be an experiment that I could do in a game but that you know if I'm doing it as a game in the real world probably is not a very good idea so so that kind of I'm, I'm an advocate for having games you know if it's reflecting the real world, you cannot. This is one thing, and I know that the, the, the technology is there, and we can do really sophisticated stuff. But I'm in game design, and an advocate for finding out what is it exactly in your system that you want to embody. You know, the system that you create has certain values, uh, and those are the values that you can is not instill them. Is not this is not about preaching a certain way, but it's about telling you like what happens if. You have a city. So, for example, in um, SimCity, you know what uh, what types of uh, city configurations are, are best. You know how do you get uh, a city that is sustainable? And this has been an experiment that, that was run um, uh, with students. I think is in uh, Sweden, uh, where they gave them SimCity, and they had to build a sustainable city with it. And what they found out is that in order to build a sustainable city, they had to grow it and have all this pollution, you know, have all these non-sustainable devices to really grow the city and then go green and then, you know, have, you know, solar panel panels or whatnot. And that, that was allowed by the system itself. You know, that's how the system was, was developed. But it's not that it's, it's something that you have to experiment with. And I, I think that that's what I like about games that people don't really... Realize that if we're building worlds, it's building so, uh, worlds that we can experiment with and try things that might be forbidden in the real world, that might not be possible in the real world. And then we can, I, I want to use games as a way to reflect on our everyday life, but not mixing them, if that
1: makes sense. Okay, make one huh. week.
3: Just following up on a lot of the great points uh, raised here. uh, I think there are t- different cultural forms that engage a lot of these issues that, that already mm-hmm. encompass aesthetics of improvisation, for, for mm-hmm. a- example. And so the reason I mentioned oral literature is, is just uh, where uh, in, in some of these models like wa thiangos you don't have to align a mise-en-scene with interactivity because the audience-performer relationship and interactivity is already theorized as a part of the kind of oral tradition model. And uh, George Lewis, uh, the, the computer uh, uh, music uh, uh, programmer and, and composers talked about multi-dominance as a particular kind of African diaspor- diasporic aesthetic in which it's not based on uh, retrieval and, uh, and and control. So it is algorithmic uh, and procedural, but but also it's not based on a, a kind of dominant or control position with the, with the system. And so it, it's just maybe a, a pointer that there are cultural models we can ground such work in that give us a, a way out of sort of what's been done so far.
1: I just want to once again thanks Clara for a great talk.